there are, as I said, some features uh, of a uh, way how the entrepreneur parties work and how they are treating the, the, the voters. They are treating the voters as the consumers. They are trying to, in very populist ways, sometimes they are trying to detect what the voters want, what will be the best product, the best seller in the electoral campaign. And uh, here we are coming back to the question of uh, whether the entrepreneurial parties are right-wing or left-wing. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, a series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Mezerg and I'm your host for this show. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the rise and fall and maybe rise again of entrepreneurial parties across Europe and maybe we'll also extrapolate a little bit to discuss political entrepreneurship on the other side of the Atlantic as well. To do this, I am joined by my guest, Vit Hrošek from the Czech Republic. Vit is the department head of the International Institute of Political Science and a professor of European politics at uh, the prestigious Masaryk University in Brno in the Czech Republic. He holds a PhD in political science from Masaryk University and specializes in comparative political science and contemporary uh, European history research. Among his publication is uh, this wonderful book, The Rise of Entrepreneurial Parties in European Politics, which was co-written with Lyubomir Kopecek and Petra Vodova, and it will naturally be the center of our discussion today. Vid, thank you very much for taking the time to join us, and uh, welcome to the show. Hello, uh, Thibault. Thank you very much for inviting me and introducing me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Great. So, Vid, I'd like to start with a very simple question, but I guess it's a crucial one if we are to start this conversation on a healthy footing. How do you define entrepreneurial parties? What are they? What are they not? And are they just about a businessman entering politics, as the name kind of suggests? Well, okay, let us start with a definition, and then we might go through some of the features which will illustrate maybe even more in detail what it means when I say the entrepreneurial party. The definition is simple. We define an entrepreneurial party as a project of someone who might be called political entrepreneur, who connects his economic and political interests, who commands and organizes the party in a hierarchical and centralized way using business logic and business approach both in organization and in political campaigning. I don't mean to say that there was no connection between the, the world of business and the world of politics, but this, in our view, is a new quality, a sort of new kind of uh, intersection between these two logics. Uh, if we look at uh, the most typical features of the entrepreneurial parties, we have to start with the crucial position of the political entrepreneur, he or she, but more typically he, behaves uh, as a real owner of the party. Uh, this is the leader's private initiative which starts the party. And uh, the leader's influence over the party character, it, it persists. Uh, the leader is the most crucial in terms of the program, uh, in terms of the issues uh, to be discussed in the electoral campaign. Uh, in terms of organization, typically the entrepreneur, the political entrepreneur is the most important in terms of, of, of subsidizing financing, at least in the period of uh, creation, uh, this entrepreneurial party. 
and uh, the leader maintains a central role in the party even after the foundation period. We can say, almost without any exaggeration, that the party uh, wakes up and falls with the leader. It can be created, it, it dies out when the leader decides to leave the project. We have some examples. Uh, then, how it works, uh, these parties inside look more like the private companies. There is a managerial style in politics. There is almost no intra-party democracy. It's not about deliberation, discussion, elections. No, it's about top-down hierarchical uh, rule of the leader and some professional managers that are doing the job, organizing campaigns, organizing candidates, etc. By the way, for the entrepreneurial parties, it is very typical that these parties do not have uh, mass membership. They have uh, some political professionals, they have some managers. Sometimes they even don't have the members uh, to run for the parties in the elections. Sometimes it looks like competition uh, for who might be the face suitable enough to get into the parliament, but no intra-party democracy. And uh, last but not least, uh, these parties uh, have a very specific relation to, to media because uh, the media, both more traditional electronic media like television or uh, the online media, online uh, communication, these are very important for the party and the party is very flexible. So they are professionals uh, in terms of how to communicate, how to send a message to the voters. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much, Vid. This was very comprehensive and there's a lot of things that you said that I will try to get back to in the uh, in the continuation of this conversation. For the moment, I would like to get back a little bit to the link between business and politics or, or business and state affairs that, that you mentioned at the, at the beginning of your of your previous answer. Because the, the, something that is very striking is that, you know, these political entrepreneurs that you study in, in your book are very often coming from the private sector. And I guess the The blueprint here is Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia. The messaging, at least initially, was really about you know making politics work uh, like the private sector. And, and, and Berlusconi was was kind of a, a trailblazer here. I mean, thinking about Andre Babish in your country in the Czech Republic, who has the same type of discourse. Powerful message also because it matches the image of a successful entrepreneur. We have civil society entrepreneurs like Igor Matovic in, in, in Slovakia. His messaging is a little bit different. He wants politics to be less political and more civil society led, uh, but definitely not party led. So basically, these political entrepreneurs are saying that democracy with political parties, the old style of democracy doesn't work and that they are going to provide the fix by bringing some fresh private sector professionalism in, in, into it. The question that I'd like to ask you is that, I mean, now we've had the, we have the hindsight because Berlusconi has, has been in and around power for uh, almost 30 years. Do they fix the problem once they gain access to power, these, these political entrepreneurs? The clear answer given by the empirical evidence from Eastern Europe, where these parties are more successful compared to Western Europe, is no, they didn't fix Uh, the problems of democratic decision making. But before I will, I will turn to uh, this question. Uh, let me comment uh, just uh, a little the, the connection between the business and the politics. You are absolutely right uh, saying that uh, Silvio Berlusconi and Forza Italia is a kind of uh, blueprint for uh, other parties to come. Uh, you are uh, absolutely right when you are saying that Andrei Babiš, the Czech Uh, Prime Minister, the current Czech Prime Minister, is the best example of how it works. 
these people started in the sphere of big business. They had their political connections because their business was partially, let's say, dependent on the state subsidies or the political impact. Once they lost the traditional political connections, in the case of Berlusconi, it was the Italian Socialist Party, which died away to, together with the, uh, with the end of the Italian First Republic. Uh, Babish was cooperating with uh, two biggest political parties in the Czech Republic uh, that lost the prominent position. So finally, okay, they, they found themselves in the situation where we need to be connected with the sphere of politics. We don't have anyone uh, to do the job for us, so maybe it's time uh, to start our own political engagement. And they created the political movement. They call it the political movement, but it's not that important. And, and they, and they, and they uh, entered the sphere of politics. But there are some other political entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial parties, uh, uh, which are uh, based on uh, the different principle. The principle, okay, I will go to politics to, to, to make my business there. Here we can serve with another Czech example, Tomio Okamura, the far-right anti-immigrant politician of, of Japanese, Korean, Czech origin, very colorful personality, by the way. Uh, he, he, he worked in the private sector, and then for some reasons he decided, okay, I, I might make some money from politics, and that's how it works. He created a party, uh, which is far-right, but because there was a niche, there was an electorate which was not uh, represented, so he decided, okay, this is the way to go. He created the party, he entered the parliament, and now he's making the money out of the party. That's another way how, how this business and, and politics can be connected. But, but back again uh, to your original question, whether uh, these political entrepreneurs are able to provide the fix, uh, whether they are uh, scoring better, whether they, are, uh, whether they improved uh, the, the quality of, of, of Czech, Slovak, or Polish politics. Well, actually, they, they didn't. And uh, uh, we can uh, take one clear example. This is the way how they tried to handle the, the COVID pandemia. Because uh, both Babish and uh, uh, you mentioned Igor Matovic, uh, the Slovak uh, political entrepreneur, coming more from the field of, of the NGOs, uh, not, not the biggest business, uh, they, they served as the prime ministers or have served as the prime ministers and both of them uh, demonstrated a rather erratic approach uh, to adoption and explanation of the anti-pandemic measures. I wouldn't call, uh, compared to other European countries, I wouldn't call the, the, the pandemic policy of, of both, uh, both uh, Matovic and, and Babish successful. It was not success, it was, it was chaotic, it was erratic. And as you perhaps know, uh, the, the Czech Republic belongs to one of the countries the most damaged by the COVID era when we are simply calculating uh, the number of casualties, etc. So, in fact, they didn't brought a new quality. They, they demonstrated that politics is something else than, than business and that uh, you have to uh, have some skills uh, that are helping you to solve the problems in, in, the, in the political way, which is not what, what they are able or capable to do. Mm -hmm. So uh, th this is super interesting. And, and I'd like to get back to this in, in my last question, because this has a lot of issues and this asks a lot of questions about, about democracy in general. But for the moment, I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit and, and go back on the profile of the, the, the political entrepreneurs. And, and, and so far, the, the entrepreneurs that we have mentioned, Berlusconi, Okamura, 
Babish, although Babish is, sits with the centrists of Alde in the uh, in, in the European Parliament in European institutions, but we're talking about people who are on the center right, right of center, or even right of right of center. I think we could also have mentioned the Team Stronach in uh, in Austria, which you you, you study in the uh, in the book. But yet there are arguably a couple of cases, not many, but there's a there's a couple of cases on the left. Uh, I think you study. Palikot in uh, in Poland, and I guess there would be a case to add for Podemos in Spain, at least during the time of Pablo Iglesias, because there was it was not necessarily completely business oriented, but there was a business dimension uh, when Pablo Iglesias was uh, uh, was there. I, I guess in the center there could also be a case to put Emmanuel Macron's en marche in this description, or, or maybe not, right? I mean, I think you asked the question in the book and there's, there's no clear answer. So may, may, maybe you can give us an answer on, uh, on this podcast. But, but my question is, is not necessarily about these, about these specific cases, but obviously entrepreneurial politics seems to be more naturally something on the center-right because business politics, the center-right historically has been about making politics more business-like, more effective, putting more private sector in. But at the same time, we see that there are uh, uh, examples in, in the left. Do you consider entrepreneurial politics a phenomenon of the right almost exclusively with a couple of exceptions, or is it more largely a cross-partisan affair? Well, that's, that's an excellent question because uh, theoretically we can assume, okay, this is the politics done by the business people. So therefore they have to, to be right-wing leaning uh, for, for logical reasons. But empirically it's much more complicated and it seems that ideology doesn't matter that much uh, to the business firm or entrepreneurial parties. Uh, I agree almost with all uh, uh, you said, with one exception, I wouldn't call Podemos, uh, even even in the period of Pablo Iglesias, uh, an entrepreneurial party, because it was something slightly different, uh, not only because of the new left ideology, but because of the way of organization. Uh, okay, uh, there are some similarities, for example, in the style of campaigning, but, but in fact, Podemos was a sort of grassroots movement. Sorry, maybe I should have mentioned uh, the Five Star Movement. Movimento Cinque Stelle, Five Stars Movement, this is a better example. Maybe it's important to note that uh, some of the parties uh, might show uh, some of the features that are typical for the entrepreneurial parties. For example, if you look at the professional organization or some specific organizational form which is not based on traditional idea of mass membership and intra-party democracy, then you might talk about some of the newly emerging parties that are following the, the similar pattern of organization. You mentioned Amar uh, Macron, you mentioned his political movement, which was created uh, like in April 2016, a year before the, the, the 2017 elections. Uh, it started uh, with the Facebook pages, then some kind of movement was created. Then, in a very hectic atmosphere, the, the lists uh, were composed for the parliamentary elections 2017. There is a very loose membership, by the way, so far uh, in this in this uh, political movement. Uh, and there you can see the pyramidal model of organization, which is typical more for uh, electoral campaigns. There, there was some inspiration from, taken from the United States of America from the way how Barack Obama created his 28 and 2012 campaigns. Uh, but uh, yet I would not call Macron a typical political entrepreneur because there is a slightly different relation between the sphere of business and, and his, political, his political movement. But apparently 
uh, in the society where people are less and less willing to engage themselves as the members of political parties, this professional model of party organization is more catchy because it is easier to develop a political party without necessity to collect the grassroots members here and there. And uh, that's uh, uh, something that, that uh, is typical not only for the entrepreneurial party. You mentioned uh, movement, Five Stars Movement, Movimento Cinque Stelle in, in Italy. Well, this is not an entrepreneurial party, but there are, as I said, some features uh, of, of a way how the entrepreneurial parties work and how they are treating the, the, the voters. They are treating the voters as the consumers. They are trying to, in very populist ways, sometimes they are trying to detect what the voters want, what will be the best product, the best seller in the electoral campaign. And uh, here we are coming back to the question of uh, whether the entrepreneurial parties are right-wing or left-wing. Well, empirically, uh, so far, the majority of them uh, can be placed uh, on the political right. But the main reason uh, is not some ideological proximity, but the fact that this works. Crystal clear example uh, can be provided by Andrei Babish and his ANO party. Uh, he started in 2013 in the campaign for the Czech parliamentary elections and his uh, manifesto looked like uh, the nice liberal right-wing political party. It worked well because uh, he was uh, addressing the voters disappointed from the standard traditional established uh, right-wing political parties and he really was able to get these voters in 2013 campaign. Then, uh, in the course of the next four years, in 2017, he uh, organized a new electoral campaign prior to the next parliamentary elections. And uh, he found out, together with his experts on political marketing, okay, uh, the right-wing voters are not uh, willing to vote for your party any longer. You have to find another cohort of voters. And he uh, changed dramatically the, the manifesto and he started to act as the left-wing political party, uh, close to uh, traditional social democratic socialist policies uh, in Europe. And he was successful because he, he uh, got the voters uh, from the political left. So very flexible uh, ideology is not the most important thing. Uh, it, it doesn't matter much for these political entrepreneurs because they are treating the, the voters uh, as the consumers and they are trying to find out, okay, what do you want? I will deliver what do you want. And then you will vote for me. That's the logic. So it, it's very much a uh, clientelist or, or, or let's say really business approach, as you say, to, uh, to politics. But I'd like to go back to one of the interesting features of entrepreneurial parties, and th that is their short life. Uh, you mentioned it at the beginning of this conversation. And I think if you go throughout the book, you, you, you realize that actually half or even three quarters of the, of the case studies that you study are parties that are no longer existing. I think the most remarkable examples, the most spectacular examples of, of, of parties that just got a good result in the election and then basically collapsed a few weeks after, after that election is Palikot in Poland, or more, even more spectacularly, uh, Tim Stronach in, in, in Austria, which basically like a few weeks after uh, the, the election basically collapses because the, the leader loses interest and, and, and then basically the, the MPs are left on their own to, to do parliamentary business, which is kind of you know, strange and tells us a lot of things about parliamentary life and how devalued it is in some ways. But 
let me put that aside, those you know, very spectacular cases aside. But even when entrepreneurial parties actually make it take root in the national political system, they don't seem to survive the, the, the historic leader. I think we, we are now uh, living the last few years of Forza Italia, and it, it's not going to survive Silvio Berlusconi. I think it's rumored that Berlusconi is, is trying to uh, arrange basically a merger with either Lega or Fratelli d'Italia in order to basically to get his legacy going. Going. And uh, I mean, it's likely to be frank that if uh, Andre Babish is, is is to leave politics after the next election in the, in the Czech Republic, Anna will probably disappear as well. Uh, you know, the leader is the party. So if you don't have the historic leader, then it's difficult to to have a party. And here, there's an interesting case, uh, maybe about uh, Cinque Stelle. Although you you say that it's not a, a typical entrepreneurial party, but you know, how does it survive the Beppe Grillo not necessarily being being in charge anymore? He is and he's not at the same time right now. But looking at this more more largely, what does this tell us about the long-term viability of our political systems? I mean, we have parties that pop up and collapse on a regular basis. Does that mean that we need to get used to much more unstable political systems? I'm afraid that the answer is, is a moderate yes, because uh, in some way, what happens typically to the entrepreneurial parties, and you are absolutely right, they are connected uh, in a crucial way with the political entrepreneur, with the founding father, typically. The person who launched the project and when he or she decides, okay, politics is not for me, then the party dies. Uh, but, but in some way, this is uh, the extreme case of the phenomenon, which is broader, which is more general. Sometimes the experts, uh, the scholars are talking about personalization of politics. And the debate is here for some two, two decades, uh, and it is related with the professionalization of party campaigning, with the turn of the party campaigning to the online media, with the fact that now the, the, the politics can be done on the nationwide basis because of the media uh, coverage. And therefore, it seems that you need the strong leader, despite the fact that you are an entrepreneurial party or not, uh, it seems that without strong leaders, you are unable to score well uh, in the elections. You need a leader uh, for campaigning. You need a leader to create the strong and viable government. So in this respect, the entrepreneurial parties are only uh, an extreme form of uh, the general trend. Maybe uh, if uh, I, I might, we, we can stress that this personalization of politics started in the sphere of political campaigning, in the sphere of communication of the politics in media. For media, it's nice to have one head, one person to talk to who uh, embodies the political party, who can who can really uh, answer all the questions. But uh, uh, later on, uh, this personalization, say, overlapped from the sphere of, of media to the, to the sphere of how the party worked uh, inside institutionalization of this personalization of politics. Uh, which uh, increases the role of the leaders uh, on the costs of the grassroots members or other other parts of political party. And then even the voters started to understand the politics more in terms of the fight among the, the top strong politicians, uh, not the fight uh, of the political parties as institutions or as, as the organizations that are expressing uh, some ideological preferences. So from this point of view, the uh, entrepreneurial parties are doing uh, consequently what happened already before or what started the trend that started already before. 
uh, as you said, uh, and maybe this is something we can we can uh, use as an illustration. You mentioned Tim Stronach, and this is absolutely a wonderful example because uh, Frank Stronach, uh, who was in his 80s when he decided he was Austrian slash Canadian. Uh, entrepreneur, uh, a big car and motor producer, and he decided, okay, at the end of his career, I will uh, return more to Austria and I will enter the Austrian politics. He created the political movement called Team Stronach. He invested some money in creation of the professional organization. Uh, he financed the campaign, but at the end of the day, his movement was not that successful. He entered the parliament, but only with a couple of seats. He visited uh, the building of the Austrian parliament as a newly elected deputy only once. Then he found out, okay, it's boring. It's, uh, it doesn't work uh, in a way I, I wanted to, to act. And, and he quitted politics immediately after uh, the elections. And even more, he even claimed uh, his money back. He, he, he told to the rest of the party, okay, I invested, I don't know how much, seven, ten millions of euro into your campaign. Uh, it didn't pay off. You, you were not winners of, of the electoral race. And now I want my money back. So uh, it's, it's a different logic. And, and without, without Tim Stronach, Tim Stronach doesn't, doesn't mean anything. So it disappeared very soon from the map of Austrian politics. Mm-hmm. So Stronach being Canadian-Austrian is, is a perfect transition to, to my next question. And I know your book focuses on Europe, but we are Think Atlantic, so we need to cross one way or the other the Atlantic. And if we cross the Atlantic, there's of course an elephant in the room there, and that's Donald Trump. Where does Donald Trump fit into your description of entrepreneurial politics? I understand that Donald Trump took over a party rather than built one, but does he fit somehow into your analysis or or, or are we talking about a completely different animal? Well, Donald Trump definitely can be called a political entrepreneur in the way we are using uh, this word uh, in our book, meaning the person coming from the big business and trying to make a career in in politics and connecting the business and the politics, at least in a way, okay, I will behave in politics as I used to behave in my private business. Uh, That's true. Maybe we can interpret uh, what happened uh, to the Republican Party during uh, Trump's era as a sort of hostile takeover. This wouldn't be the, the, the the only example. We have one tiny party in the history of Czech politics Uh, which existed before the political entrepreneur uh, and the political entrepreneur uh, took over the party in a very hostile way and created huge problems for this political party which doesn't exist any longer. I think, uh, well, I think I'm sure that the Republican Party will survive. But uh, uh, what what happened, if you you, uh, return back, uh, if you turn back to the period of Donald Trump, he destroyed a lot uh, the internal cohesion of the Republican Party. He uh, almost hosted some of the traditional uh, politicians of the party uh, who were not that much uh, happy with the political style and the uh, policy preferences of Donald Trump. So he behaved uh, as a very, very strong political entrepreneur. On the other hand, we have to say, and I'm not an expert on American politics, uh, that's why we remained in Europe uh, as far as uh, the case studies in our book are concerned. But we have to remember that the tradition, the culture of American politics, the connection of private business and, and, and American politics, well, this is slightly different compared to Europe. And we can see more elements of uh, what we call the political entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial parties as a sort of tradition of American politics. I'm not saying that 
this is inevitably worse than in Europe. I'm just saying that this is different and maybe uh, we would need to make uh, a softer or, or more finer definition of uh, entrepreneurial party uh, to differentiate it uh, from the, this, this American tradition. But, but you are right, uh, Donald Trump definitely can be analyzed around the concept of political entrepreneur because it, it works like this. So let's cross again the Atlantic for this final but but fundamental question. And uh, I'd like to go back to the text of your book, to be more exact, at page 182. And, and you talk about the, the limitations of, of the entrepreneurial parties and, and the problems that they pose more generally for democracy, right? They, they were built to refresh democracies. And in some ways they do, because otherwise, I guess, voters wouldn't, wouldn't vote for them. And at the same time, and I think we mentioned that earlier, they pose fundamental problems. And I'm quoting you here, more dangerous are their following characteristics, typically little or no internal democracy, perilous connection between high politics and big business, and the economic exploitation of politics. These phenomena are integrally connected with the fact that in their working methods and organization, entrepreneurial parties take their inspiration from business. So again, you know, that we hear about the, the incestuous links somehow between business and politics. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to go further in the book, not that much further, actually, to the next page. And, and I guess here you, you hit the nail on the head, so to speak. Again, quote here, as long as we do not give up on the idea that political parties should behave as organizations to aggregate and represent collective interest, the absence of intraparty democracy is a problem, not least because it permits too much ideological and policy flexibility, end quote, which is basically what we discussed a moment ago. And, and this is where we enter in a fundamental problem. If politics is just a, another consumer good, if we live in a world in which entrepreneurial parties become more common, can democracy survive? Or, or rather, let me rephrase, can we have a sound political system with entrepreneurial parties dominating our political party systems? That's a fundamental question. You are absolutely right, because uh, this goes beyond these technical issues, how it works, who are the political entrepreneurs. But the question is what impact they might have uh, in, the, in the long term. Well, I'm sure that democracy can survive the political entrepreneurs, but there is a question uh, which would be the quality of, of this democracy. I am still more uh, inclining to conceptualize democracy as a procedure, typically a procedure of, of selection of, of the political elite in, in the fair and competitive elections, which is something that might be uh, without any problem preserved even by the political entrepreneurs. What I am more concerned with is the liberal component of what we call liberal democracy. And this liberal component is very important. And in my view, this can be a compensation for these new trends uh, in party politics. Because, okay, when the voters are uh, treated as consumers and they sometimes behave as, as consumers, they are not uh, very much interested in the traditional forms of political participation, uh, we might say it's a problem that uh, the entrepreneurial parties do not have intra-party democracy, they do not have members, but okay, it's not only the fault of the political entrepreneurs, uh, the, the, the citizens are not willing to cooperate. If you look at the, at the figures, uh, Europe-wide, the number of people or the share of the voters who are actively participating uh, at party politics is declining. So vast majority of the voters uh, are simply engaged, let's say, around the elections or in the case of some crisis. 
So that's, that's another uh, important thing to mention, that, that we need active citizens to prevent uh, these degradation of the, the party democracy. But uh, when there is a lack of these active citizens, we have still some tools uh, that might compensate, and they are from the toolbox of liberal component of, of uh, liberal democracies. Uh, we have the independent judicial power, including the, the, the constitutional courts uh, in Europe, uh, that might prevent some distortions of uh, the legal order or violation of some fundamental uh, citizens or human rights. And then, of course, we have to consider or reconsider, better to say, we have to reconsider uh, the role of media. Because media are no more only watchdogs of democracy. This is the famous slogan. And in some way, the media are still working uh, as the watchdogs of, of democracy. But they are at the same time the trendsetters, agenda setters. They are offering the platform for influencing uh, the voters. So maybe we have to treat media uh, as a sort of not only independent uh, actor, on the political process, but an important component of the political process. Maybe some more responsibility, accountability, uh, no matter how you uh, might call it, uh, will be necessary in the future. But as I said, if the voters are willing to accept that politics is just infotainment, that they are acting like the consumers, they are just looking for the immediate benefits from one election to another, well, then it's very... complicated for other types of uh, political parties to survive because the political entrepreneurs are are the most flexible. They are uh, the most willing to offer the voters uh, to talk uh, in a way the voters would like to listen. So that's, in my view, one of the crucial issues, how to return back uh, the active engagement of the people uh, in, in, in democratic politics. Indeed. And in the end, in a democracy, you get the the leaders you deserve. And uh, there is obviously a dimension about the voters that hopefully we'll get back to in a a future episode of of Think Atlantic. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you, Vit. We have a couple of minutes left. And so I'd like to invite you, like my other guests, to take part in our Q&A lightning section. It's very simple. I'm asking you three very short questions. And I'm asking you to provide three very, very short answers. Yes, no one word, two words, no more. Is, it, is this okay for you? Well, I will try. <laughs> okay. So, uh, question number one. If you were to choose one politician, who would be the model of all political entrepreneurs? Silvio Berlusconi. Question number two. With the rise of entrepreneurial parties, is there a future for classical catch-all parties? Yes, it is. Question number three. Does the rise of entrepreneurial parties tell us something more sinister about the rise of personal charisma as a definer of electoral politics? Definitely, it, it does. Okay, well, that was very short answers. Thank you very much. And I guess we'll leave it here. Thank you so much, Vid, for taking part in today's show and, and enlightening us on uh, entrepreneurial politics. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, then I definitely advise you to read Vid's 2020 book, The Rise of Entrepreneurial Parties in European Politics. It's co-written with Lyubomir Kopecek and Petra Vodova. It is part of the larger Palgrave series on European political sociology, and it really is a fantastic read. And of course, while you are browsing the web, you should definitely check out IRI's website at iri.org to check out what we do to promote democracy, including our longtime 
commitment to help strengthen resilient party systems and uh, a strong transatlantic dialogue as well. We are on Twitter at IRI Global and, of course, at Think Atlantic for this podcast series. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Brianna Kerr, Hannah Mont, and Sam Johannes for producing this series. We will be back in a couple of weeks with my guest, Niku Popescu, to talk about defining legislative elections in Moldova, which are coming up in early July. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. And of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Talk to you soon.